Hey, I'm David Bitterman. If we've never met before, I'm a lawyer, and I've been doing this for a while. I started practicing when the latest tool was an IBM Selectric typewriter, if you all know what that is. I'm Jasmine Weatherell. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a millennial who made the mistake of starting my practice in 2012, right after the Great Recession. And together, we're proud to host the Persuasion Occasion. It's a multi-generational look at advocacy and negotiation. Do I have this right, Jasmine? Millennials are accustomed to having a voice and seat at the table, and they're an optimistic group who loves social media and want their job and encounters to have meaning? Well, David, I'll admit there's some truth in there. But what about baby boomers? They're known for their strong work ethic and often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Is that true, David? Jasmine, I have no idea. I'm too old to categorize those people, including myself. But let's talk about the show. We're going to look at persuasion from all dimensions. Our guests are going to include... Super lawyers, skilled negotiators, jury consultants, behavioral scientists, mind readers, and other experts, all talking about how to be an effective advocate. And we're really excited about working together. Maybe you more than I, David. (laughs) All right, but let's dive in. Welcome to Persuasion Occasion, which is our effort to uh, provide different perspectives on what's persuasive and what's not, but also to interview luminaries in various fields. And today we're very lucky to have Marcus Funk, very successful career prior to joining Perkins, both as working for the State Department in Kosovo and as a AUSA uh, in Chicago. But Jasmine, I'll let you provide further introduction and then we'll Marcus will let let you speak finally. Okay. As David mentioned, we're joined by Marcus, who's a partner at Perkins Coie in our Denver office. He was a section chief with the U.S. State Department in the Balkans following the war in Kosovo, where he represented the United States in diplomatic negotiations and participated in the restructuring of Kosovo's post-war justice system. And he was also a federal prosecutor in Chicago, where he prosecuted members of the Chicago Mafia, most notably in a case called Operation Family Secrets, uh, which we're going to talk about a bit today. And with that, let me turn it over to Marcus. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and how you started out and how you became a lawyer. So it's great to be with you guys. I grew up in uh, Germany, uh, as you maybe can tell from my slightly nasally accent. It's uh, it's sort of a still a, a little bit of an artifact of my uh, of of my upbringing. I was born in Florida, but six weeks after my birth, my I was taken over to to Germany by my parents, and I lived over there intermittently. Until I was 18, came to the U.S., went to college, went to the University of Illinois, and after college, uh, spent a year in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, working in a ski shop and and sort of living the uh, uh, the ski bum life a little bit, and then went to law school at Northwestern, and following that, went to a clerkship, two clerkships actually, one for uh, Judge Catherine Perry uh, on the district court, chief judge in the district court in St. Louis, and then uh, for Judge uh, Morris Arnold, who is on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And you mentioned, David, you mentioned Judge Anderson, who uh, was my first boss, first person to ever hired me as an intern. She was being very polite by not mentioning uh, sort of some of my deficiencies as a young lawyer. He's very fond of you. I'll tell you that, Marcus. Anyway, he's a great, great guy and was a great, actually great role model for me throughout my career, both professionally and personally. But yeah, I went to law school and, and after law school was sort of, and after clerking, thought to myself, well, what do I do next? Um, my mom at that point had gotten sick and, and was living in Spain. And so I, I thought, you know, in, in those days, kind of proximity was a little different than we think of it today. 
you know, when we have what we're doing right now, which is, a, a, you know, the ability to talk by video and so forth, that wasn't really around in the, in the late 90s. And so I, I went to Oxford to, to pursue a PhD, ended up getting a teaching position over there, which was awesome. And, and so I thought to myself, well, I can, you know, I was on the tennis team and I, I did a bunch of other things, was social chairman of our college and thought, well, I can just sort of like do the PhD on the side. And it, as it turns out, uh, that's not kind of how Oxford operates. And so <laughs> I, uh, I learned one of my many lessons of humility and humility there. And, and so with, uh, with, with great fanfare, I, I completed my PhD uh, two years ago, which uh, I think I hold the record for, uh, you know, two decades between beginning and ending uh, the PhD program over there. What was the PhD in, Marcus? Oxford's pure research PhDs, right? So unlike in the U.S. where you take classes and so forth, it's, it's purely writing a, a, a long, like an 80,000-word dissertation. Mine was on comparative law of self-defense, sort of the moral foundations of self-defense law, and also how self-defense laws differ between Germany, England, the United States, and some other countries. And I, I ended up doing turning that into a book um, with Roman Littlefield or Bloomsbury, Oh, I take it back with Hart Publishing uh, and uh, the Roman Littlefield was a different book. Got it done finally, but in the intervening years, sort of in between starting at Oxford and and coming back to the U to the U.S., I my my thought was, well, how could I distinguish myself from all of these other amazing professors at Oxford? And I, my goal at the time still was to go back and teach full time. One thing that I thought might work is getting some practical experience, which is something that isn't sort of uh, the mainstream in academia in, in the U.S. either, but also in, in, in England. And so I, I had the opportunity to come in AUSA in Chicago, which was a really a dream, and thought to myself, I do that for three, four years, uh, fulfill my minimum obligations with the Department of Justice, and then return to U.K. and teach but as luck would have it, it just was such an amazing opportunity, such an amazing career. Um, I enjoyed that part of my my legal career so much. I didn't have lawyers in my family. I didn't have a lifelong ambition to be a, a lawyer. And I enjoyed that being a prosecutor a lot. And uh, so I ended up staying there for, for 10 years until um, uh, I came out here to to Colorado when my when 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 my wife and I moved out here and so in, in the in between there between 2000 and 2010 I spent two years in Kosovo as you mentioned as the resident legal advisor chief legal person uh, slash section chief for the DOJ in Kosovo and so that was a really also an amazing experience very different but uh, another amazing experience so that's sort of sorry for going on a bit but that's in short form. Uh, my career, and I've been happy uh, at Perkins Coie now ever since, so since 2010. Well, we're glad to have you, Marcus, I'll tell you that. Um, we reached out to you because I was not aware of your role in Operation Family Secrets. It was so immense. I mean, they made a movie about it, Casino, and involved like dozens of murders and, and an investigation of a, of a crime syndicate over 10 or 15 years of, and a trial. And so we just wanted to hear you, if you don't mind, just giving us some of the background of that, how you first got involved, what the operation was like, what the trial was like, any advice you have for our listeners about trying cases, too. Sure. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you, David, that I was sort of this incredible prodigy uh, and, <laughs> and everyone wanted you know me to lead this, uh, this massive investigation. The, the truth of it is I was over in Kosovo. And decided to come back to the U.S. and was given the opportunity to join the trial team. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking over to my right here. I've got a shadow box up on the wall that has three bananas. 
in it, which is one of the parting gifts I received uh, when I left the government because uh, I was uh, lovingly referred to as the third banana uh, <laughs> during the trial. It was the culmination of, of, of life's work for, particularly for two of my colleagues, Mitch Mars and John Scully. John, who is now a judge, recently retired, and Mitch um, uh, very tragically passed away not long after the trial concluded. He was quite sick, unbeknownst to anyone, including himself. But those, those two were part of our organized crime squad. And the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, like some of the bigger offices, they have very discreet different types of, uh, of, of criminal enterprises that different people work on. And so they were in the organized crime squad. They were a little older. They kind of kept to themselves and uh, worked away doing this mysterious work that none of us really were had a whole lot of insight into. When I was asked to join the team and I came back from Kosovo, I, for the first time, really got to work with both of them. And it was, I mean, a highlight of my of my career. And I really thank my lucky stars. I mean, it has as much to do with luck than than skill that I was able to to join their team. It was, as you described, David, the the I this always causes the hackles to go up with my friends in New York, but the FBI, NPR, and other uh, outlets have referred to it, and I think it's accurate as as the nation's most extensive mob murder case. And I think it gets that moniker because uh, we 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 covered uh, 40 years plus of criminal activity, extortion, gambling, bookmaking, juice loans, murder. Um, you name it, those are all sort of the uh, the pre- RICO predicates that we had to prove. So we did a racketeering case covering 40 years. We charged 14 homicides. I'm sorry, 17 homicides. But but in fact, there were uh, dozens and dozens more. In, in, in reality, in Chicago, there were roughly 3,000 homicides that were committed by the Chicago mob. That's the FBI's estimate, of which 12 were where they were able to find the perpetrators. Uh, I shouldn't say where they were able to find. They found a lot of the perpetrators, but they didn't decide to prosecute them because Chicago was, and if you watch the news in Chicago still is, to some extent a deeply corrupt city in the sense of, of the, a lot of the, not a lot, but I mean, there, there are too many public servants who are, whether those are judges or prosecutors or police officers, uh, or in our case, a U.S. Marshal, were corrupt and corruptible. My involvement in the in the case started really decades after the case began. I mean, this was... We were using, um, in the trial that you mentioned, we used, you know, audio recordings from the 1970s, 1980s. I mean, it was it was a real historiography of the Chicago organized crime family. Uh, and, and I say family, I should maybe at that point also distinguish Chicago from New York. New York operated on paternal lines, right? You know, you think of the Lucchese crime family or the Bonanos or... And, and and so the, the five families. So to make it into uh, leadership, you had to be very successful uh, within your family, and you had to carry generally carry the family name. And as we know from, uh, not to be mean, but uh, from uh, maybe our friends in England, uh, the paternal lines, choosing people based on paternal lines is not the foolproof way of getting the smartest, brightest. <laughs> and so... And we see it, you know, in New York to some extent, too. I mean, it was quite easy. I mean, the FBI knows every single organized crime figure in New York by name, and they know each other. Uh, It's very different in Chicago, where it was very few, although we had one family, uh, the Calabreses, in in, in our case. um, But very rarely do people who make it to the top echelons, uh, the Cardos, the Capones, do they have children who get into the business? In other words, they it's a it's sort of a meritocracy. Think of a large corporation, right? You work your way up, 
you make it to the top and then you take that money and your kids study law or go to medical school or whatever and then do, do whatever they do, but they don't do organized crime work typically. Is that true? Yeah. And then, so it's a very different business model in New York. You know, there's still a lot of Italian spoken monies go back to Italy. Tribute gets paid to Italy. Uh, Chicago is very different. I mean, there are a couple, you know, fragmentary <laughs> Italian phrases that are used. My favorite, Scarpa Grande, the big shoe. That's how they refer to the FBI. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. uh, but uh, as we learned, in Chicago, it's really, the, the, yeah, you have to be an Italian to be an, a made member of, of the mob. And they call it the outfit in Chicago. People don't travel back to Italy to meet with the folks in Italy. They don't pay money back to Italy. It's very uh, self-contained in that sense. Quite American, uh, frankly. And the Chicago outfit, if you think about the geographic spread, uh, it also it operated from Chicago, you know, Kansas, Vegas, New Orleans, all the way over to L.A. So it was a really vast geographic spread. But uh, because people tended to keep a lower profile and, and not be quite as flamboyant, you know, less fur coats, less Cadillacs than in New York, they weren't unless reality TV shows, too. <laughs> it was a much more effective uh, organized crime group, which was problematic for us because we had never really had an opportunity to put a major dent, I mean, a major dent in, into the Chicago outfit. And like I said, 3,000 homicides, 12 of which were solved. No, no made member ever was uh, convicted of a homicide in Chicago in the history of Chicago. No made member ever cooperated uh, with law enforcement. And so we were facing a pretty monumental challenge, and a challenge which I really came in at, and, on the tail end to some extent in terms of building the evidence, building the case, the way it worked out is we ended up charging uh, 14 defendants, uh, five of which went to trial. We charged multiple made members of the Chicago mob. We had made members who cooperated in the investigation. Nick Calabrese was the, uh, the main uh, witness we had, who was the brother of Frank Calabrese, who was one of our defendants. So there was a lot of personal drama, a lot of human drama, and a lot of expectations. I mean, this is one of those, you know, when you're a in AUSA, you, you you typically work away and you've got your cases and most of them never really surface in any kind of public sense. I mean, there might be a little blurb in the local newspaper, but by and large, you're kind of doing your doing your job. I, I cycled from, from the general crimes group, which we start with first three years. Then I went to, to cartels, uh, our cartel group, and then went overseas and then came back and was in the organized crime squad for the rest of my career. Did a lot of financial fraud, financial crimes, kind of like we all, like we all do. But there was, to me, a lot of pressure because uh, I'll, I'll leave the expletive out. But as Mitch said to me, as I was really nervously getting ready for uh, my closing uh, for the for our case, I did the closing, and he said, "You know, don't screw it up." Um, and I, that was uh, that was his sense of humor. Anyone who knew Mitch knew he had an amazing um, dry sense of humor. And so for me, I was really, I mean, at the time, uh, not anymore, but I was the young guy, right? I mean, so I was working with guys who are now my age, like in their 50s. And at the time, I was sort of the, the you know, early 30s, younger person joining the team and, and was not fully initiated. I didn't know all the, the ins and outs of the Chicago mob and all the names and interrelationships. And so my very, um, you know, modest objective was not to screw it up. Uh, that was really... Yeah. You know, I was not going for the A+. Plus. You know, I wasn't trying to do some real heroics um, in terms of cross-examinations and so forth. It turned out that of the five defendants that went to trial, three of them testified, which is extraordinarily unusual. It ended up being, just to give you a little bit of a background on the trial, 
it ended up being a three-month trial. Uh, it ended up, we ended up having uh, over 130 witnesses. It was grueling. I have never gone through anything like it before or since in the sense that no matter how prepared you are, when you've got 130 witnesses, you know, one person's in the courtroom doing the trial, you're prepping a witness, you're, you know, you're sleeping very little. Uh, uh, John, I remember John had a, a blow-up uh, bed mattress in his in his office. Uh, he would sleep overnight on many nights, and we I would too. We did the trial in the ceremonial courtroom in, in the Chicago, where the Seventh Circuit sits, and it was standing room only in the sense that there were literally lines outside of the uh, both the courtroom itself, but also in the courthouse of people, spectators who wanted to come watch. None of them came to watch us, by the way. I mean, no one was there <laughs> because, you know, John, Mitch Mars or, or, or John Scully or Marcus Funk were going to going to do some heroics and that was part you asked about persuasion that was part of our part of our goal was also to let the jury know and and frankly let the defendants know that uh, they might think that they kind of own the house um but uh, but that that's not how it's going to turn out and so a lot of the charm and a lot of the uh, theatrics that the defendants and their attorneys one or two in particular who were very kind of played to, to type uh you know the uh pinstripe suit, the black shirt, the pink tie, the flick back hair, the whole nine yards, right? I mean, that, I don't know if that's particularly persuasive, uh, by the way, for a jury. Um, but we had to figure out, hey, how do we explain to a jury 40 years of conduct? You know, we could have charged, without getting into too many details, dozens of people. Uh, but we didn't. We went for really the core group, and we went for the group where we felt like, okay, we can really make a persuasive case here. We, we can present a case to the jury that the jury's going to understand that's not too heavily weighted to one or, or the other defendant that shows that, you know, part of a RICO conspiracy is you have to show that there's a, a criminal um, operation and that the, that the criminal uh, enterprise has continuity, has structure, and that the, uh, that the criminal uh, enterprise has particular criminal objectives. And so you have to prove that every single person in the group, they don't even have to know each other. And in our case, some people have never met prior to the trial. But um, you have to show that they were all involved in the same overall uh, criminal enterprise, racketeering enterprise. And so unlike a lot of cases where the goal is really to figure out how much evidence we can put on the table against a person, in our case, it was almost like being a, a movie director with you know 100 hours of, of, of a potential film and you've got to figure out how to cut it down. And so we had to figure out how to cut down the number of defendants, the number of uh, uh, the number of videos and audio tapes and so forth we played, so that the jury got a really easy understanding of what happened. And you know, look, we're talking about twelve jurors. We had more. We have alternates too. But it's hard to get twelve people to agree on anything, truly anything. And so to get them all to agree beyond a reasonable doubt that all these predicates were met and that every one of these defendants did what we said they did, et cetera, was a uh, was a big burden, and normally you do it again in relative obscurity. Here we had, you know, essentially every major news outlet from uh, from the U.S. and overseas sitting in court every day, and you you know occasionally you'd, you'd see coverage of the case, and um, you know people critiquing performances and so forth. And um, it was not one that we wanted to lose. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. I mean, let me let me even go back to basics because I, I was reading about this operation in preparation for this podcast, and I, I was like, "Why is this investigation called Family Secrets?" Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Because I, I mean, there's a generational aspect there too, right? 
Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a generational aspect. The reason it was called uh, Family Secrets is because I can't even remember how who came up with the name. It's a great name, very apropos here. So, and it's always hard to describe. It's like when people describe family relationships, it makes total sense to them. But at least for me, whenever I hear he's this person's cousin's brother, and you know, it always gets confusing. But I'll try to make it as simple as I can. In the center of this case, we have a guy named Frank the Breeze Calabrese. They all had quite colorful names, you know, Joey the Clown Lombardo, Frank the Breeze Calabrese, Jimmy, Little Jimmy Marcello, Anthony Twan Doyle, and uh, and Frank <laughs> and 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 Paul the Indian Shira. Those are our defendants <laughs> at trial. But Calabrese was this sort of uh, very violent. I mean, a murderer. Multi, I mean, over a dozen times, many many more times than that. And candidly, I mean, we we charged a certain number of murders, but we we're aware of a lot more. Um, and so Calabrese was this really hardened street thug who made it up pretty far within the mob. And so he did this sort of, he had this routine where he was very friendly and charming, but he he would turn on a dime. And, and it, it turned out that that happened actually in our trial at the closing. But so yeah, Frank Calabrese, who is this, this um, mob killer, uh, a street crew leader, and his brother is a guy named Nick Calabrese. So we've got these two brothers. Frank is this very, he loved the, he was more almost in a sense of a New York uh, mobster. I mean, he loved going to the restaurant. He loved when they took his coat off and sat him down and laughed at his jokes. Nick was someone that we, and this came out in the trial, we really didn't have a whole lot on him. We didn't really know a whole lot about him. We we thought he was a good for one murder, which is what ultimately caused us to, to approach him. And I'll, I can talk to you about persuasion and that in terms of flipping people as well, because that was an interesting comparison and contrast, how two different agents, two different different approaches with, with Nick, and it one worked and one didn't. But so we have Nick, who's like this more quiet, sort of just sort of, you, you, you'd meet him, you wouldn't remember him. Turned out he was a very prolific mob murderer as well. I mean, uh, uh, he admitted to being involved in over 30 homicides. And so, including if you ever watch the movie Casino, there is a scene in which um, the two brothers are, are, are beaten to death and, and pushed into a grave in a cornfield. They're wearing like a white underwear. In, in reality, that's, and that's they're portrayed by uh, Joe Pesci, who's one of the two. In reality, those are the Spilatro brothers. Uh, uh, and so um, the Spilatro brothers were, in fact, killed by these guys. And Nick was one of the, the prime mover on that. And they were, in fact, yeah, they were, in fact, uh, dumped in a cornfield. It was a little inaccurate in the sense that they were actually killed in, a, in Bensonville, Illinois, in a basement, and then brought to the cornfield. But Scorsese made the movie prior to us prosecuting the case. And so it was, there was that, there, was, there were a couple places where he had it, had it wrong, but that's understandable. And so what happened is we were able to flip Nick Calabrese, the brother, and at the same time, roughly at the same time, Frank Calabrese Jr., this is, remember, Frank is our central bad guy. His son was being brought into the life, which it was different than what we normally saw, right, as I mentioned at the outset. And he wrote a letter to the FBI saying, basically, my brother, you know, I want to help you guys get my dad. Yeah. Yeah, because he said, look, I knew that I was either going to be forced to be in this life or get killed by my dad. Wow. That was sort of the, the, the way he viewed the world. He was in prison at the time. With his dad, and so he he realized he felt he had no way out, and so he wrote a letter to the FBI 
But he didn't know that his uncle was cooperating. His uncle didn't know his nephew was cooperating. And Frank Calabrese, who's in the middle of all this, certainly didn't know anyone was cooperating. And so that really allowed us to build a case, very independent case, so that the jury didn't think we were like, you know, just making it all up, which is, of course, always, wow. you know, <laughs> the defense attorneys always say, oh, it's all dirt, you know. It's 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 these dirty cooperators who are cooperating because they're trying to save their hide, and it's these willing you know dupes within the government who are basically you know, not only accepting but in fact furthering lies being presented to the jury, and that's just not what happened in our case. It's not what happens in ninety nine point nine nine percent of other cases, but that's always the argument. And so the fact that we had these very independent lines of uh, of cooperation, also sort of the the, the older generation cooperating and then the younger generation cooperating was why we called it family secrets because there were some secrets in the family that no one no one no one knew about and I can just real briefly elaborate on since uh, persuasion is obviously in the name here that what happened with Nick is we and it's a longer it's an interesting but a longer story but we basically had evidence that Nick Calabrese was involved in a homicide of a guy named John Fecarata. And so the first agent, a group of agents that approached him, uh, basically in prison, basically said what you'd think in a movie, right? Like they did this sort of like hard line, emotionless, you know, we're, you're screwed. We're going to, you know, you have no choice. We're going to do this and that if you don't cooperate. And Nick, whose whole life had been bullied by his brother, did not respond well to that, right? Uh, he really... It, 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 he was really understandably allergic to being bullied by anyone, especially someone from the FBI. So he basically got up and walked out the room and said, you know, you guys do what you want to do. And then we had another approach by a younger agent, a guy named Mike Maseth, who um, was fairly new, new agent at the time. Great guy, great, unbelievably talented agent. And he approached uh, Nick with compassion, with sort of a, a, a much more sort of try to develop some interpersonal relationship, doing the kinds of things we all do when we sit down with with witnesses, or at least should do, which is, you know, before you jump into the questions, you try to get to know them a little bit and, you know, kind of try to develop some commonality. Build some trust. Yeah, trust. Yeah. And it's so hard to do these days because a lot of what we do is what we're doing right now. We do it through the through the video, and a lot of the rapport building happens in the, in, in, in the small moments, in the uh, getting a glass of co a cup of coffee or just talking about the weather to build a little bit of a connection with the people you're dealing with. But this, you know, um, uh, this agent, Mike Maseth, he really, he has that skill. And uh, and that later in his career just came out again and again and again. But he has this skill, uh, likability, persuasion. And so he approached Nick in a totally different way. Not the whole, I'm, a, I'm an FBI agent, don't screw with me or else. But in a you know, hey, I know you you have a tough life and you, you you face things that most of us don't face and let's talk about it and let's see, you know, what we can do here. And that's exactly what ultimately um, caused Nick to cooperate. And not only did he cooperate, he said, I don't want lawyers. And the reason he didn't want lawyers is, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm not trying to throw a cast aspersions against anyone, but when mobsters get attorneys, they tend not to just get a random attorney out of the phone book. They tend to get trusted lawyers, you know, trusted by whom? Well, just trusted by the individual defendant. Uh -huh. And so, um, you know, they're indemnified. Think of, uh, you know, in our world, right? They're, they're indemnified by the company. And so he said, look, I don't want a lawyer. I want you guys to treat me fairly. I want you to treat me fairly. And I will tell you what I know. No, no written agreement, no immunity, nothing. 
So, you know, Mitt, Mike Mesa sat down with him and what came out of it was a 130-page FBI 302 report, which is extraordinarily long, detailing dozens and dozens of homicides, bombings, murders, extortions. I mean, probably 97% of which we had zero idea that Nick was involved in. I mean, so he completely, when he said, I'm going to be honest with you and I'm going to tell you everything I know, he told us everything he knew. And ultimately, right, I mean, so 2007 is this is this three-month trial. John becomes a judge. Mitch passes away. I'm left. And then I handle the sentencings that happened in 2009. So 2007 to 2009, we're getting ready for the sentencings and all the post-conviction stuff and then ultimately the appeals and so forth. We convicted all, I'm burying the lead here. We, 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 got, we were able to get convictions across the board. We got to sentencing and, and Nick, remember had this informal, if you will, or expectation that we're going to treat him fairly. I mean, I even remember telling the, the victims that until now, you know, they probably had a fairly positive view of us, of me, as representing the interest of their loved ones who were murdered by these mobsters, some of which were themselves involved in their life, some of them weren't. But my job was to be fair to Nick, and I spent a lot of time with Nick at that point, and, and to, to tell the jury, or not the jury, rather the judge, Judge Zagel, who's also passed away, uh, uh, to tell Judge Zagel what what this person did for us and and how he did it and how we would have never been able to build this case without him. He ended up getting he if I recall correctly he he admitted to twelve homicides involvement in many others and he ended up getting twelve years and he'd served four already so he only had eight years so he essentially got sentenced for eight to eight years for everything he did, which may well be one of the better deals, maybe the best deal anyone's ever gotten in terms of the number of years per homicide. But it was a it was a weird case. And, and it was one of those rare cases where we, you know, we made a deal and we stuck to our part of the deal. And, um, and Nick has also passed away uh, recently. So it's also a sign of age uh, that, you know, people are starting to, to pass away. And Frank Calabrese passed away uh, as well. Um, Frank Calabrese and I had a very contentious relationship, you know, in part because in, clo- in the closing argument, I, I, uh, he and I had sort of a little bit of a flare-up after which he said, you know, he mumbled, you're a dead man, or actually said, you're effing dead man. And, um, and that ended up having a longer story to it. And, uh, uh, but that happens in these cases, right? I mean, and part of our job is not to be look scared. I mean, if the jury's going to see that, they don't want us to look scared because you always worry that the jury is going to be intimidated. And they have, certainly in Chicago, we have a history of a jury ah. um, manipulation by sometimes by per- court personnel, but more often just directly by by mobsters going to their home or their brother or sister or parent's home and saying, hey, I hear your, you know, your loved one is testifying in a trial, boy, or rather is a juror in a trial. It would be real shame if, if, you know, he misunderstood the facts and found someone guilty. Oh wow! So we were always worried about that, but uh, but I've gone on for a bit. I gave you sort of a uh, a narrative here about uh, the case, but it's it's always I don't say fun, but it, it it is a trip down memory lane to some extent because this was a, a case that was so important in all of our lives, and it's sort of a case that we're all tied with, but that you know in our day to day life, representing companies and doing you know kind of complex stuff and in the commercial space doesn't come up very often. Um, and so it's, uh, I'm happy to, to also look at other persuasion aspects that you might, that might've come up during my, my wall of uh, chatter here. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world. It's a different world. You described the, the 
defense lawyers a bit. How, how did you guys handle yourselves? I mean, what was your bearing? Was a typical kind of AUSA very formal and stiff or a, something different? Well, now, David, you say formal and stiff. I would call it professional, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember my first trial at Perkins was uh, against uh, DuPont um, down in Miami in state court. And I was so used to being a federal prosecutor where we have very... The expectations are high, right? We don't screw around. We're not. We, we um, we're held to account by judges, many of which are former AUSAs. We're held to a very high standard. And all of a sudden, I was in a state court in Miami, and it was just you know free for all, relatively speaking. But so I see what you're saying about like the stiff part. We actually had very different roles uh, to some extent. That Mitch was sort of the um, the brains of the operation. Right? He's dedicated his whole life. This really was the. The culmination of their careers. I mean, they'd all prosecuted a defendant here, a defendant there. They'd never had a shot at the mob the way this case allowed them to. And so for Mitch, Mitch was a really funny guy who was had kind of a boyish look to him and 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 just was very good and very professional. And his cross-examinations were were very even but withering. John was sort of the the steady hand as well. I mean, John had been a prosecutor for a long time. You know, he didn't show a lot of emotion in court. He was sort of very, just very calm and and, and very um, non-confrontational in a sense. I mean, he did a great job of, of cross-examinations and directs and so forth, but he, not a flamboyant type. Uh, the defense attorneys, on the other hand, again, particularly one, one or two and one in particular were very kind of flamboyant. The one guy once brought a parrot in, like a little electronic parrot that would, like you'd speak to it and it'd speak back. And he he went, and, and in our case, actually, he brought a a fake sewer into the courtroom and then dropped like rats in it. And I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of crap you just don't normally see in a federal courtroom. And it's the kind of thing that, if handled right, actually really makes them look like dummies. Especially when, like, and at one point he brought a, he tried to bring a cart in, but he couldn't get it through the the well of the court. Like a cart that this one guy had, you know, like a, like a selling like whatever, like ice cream out of or whatever. And just all these theatrics, but they always backfired on him. And he made him look like an idiot. Uh, well, maybe that's mean, but that's how I felt about it. And I think the jury got the vibe that we thought that's what he he, he looked like. Because every time we, we had the opportunity to, we would take the opportunity to kind of mock these approaches. And so my role, and particularly then my, my personality was, I think it's fair to say, more confrontational uh, than than my colleagues. And so... I was more likely to be a little combustible uh, when doing cross-examinations and and to really, I knew I could get under, we all knew how to get under people's skin, but I I sort of, I have a slightly irritating way about me that maybe you can see. I figured out ways of getting under the skin of the people I was cross-examining. And that worked out well because it would just cause them to blow up and, and sort of be a little more sarcastic than I would normally do in a trial, be a little bit more... You know, there was a little more leeway given after three months of a trial when you've got this kind of conduct and the kind of theatrics that defense attorneys did. We had a little more leeway in some of our crosses. And so I was just, I was given a little more leash than normal, which again, ended up causing me personally some issues just with with uh, some particular folks uh, in the trial, that the threats and then stuff that happened afterwards. Well, it'd be great if you could give us an example of one of these things where you got under someone's skin. I'm I'm really curious to hear about this. So even though we get a little combustible um, on occasion with some of the defendants, in a sense, the jurors, you know, you could look, right? You could ask a question, see the guy blow up, and then look at the jurors, 
and they know you get it. You they you can see it in their face that they saw that we just unmasked this guy for who he really is. Like, oh, is he a guy, the kind of guy who would like be party to murders or know about be or involved in an organization that commits murders? I thought he was this really sweet, nice guy just now. No, he's not. And you can see it. And Calabrese did the same thing. Calabrese blew up. He blew up during my closing, a five-hour closing, I've got to say, so it was a long one. You know, at one point, uh, he, I was talking about a homicide he committed. And I would always tell the jurors, look, I know this is, you're probably really tired of hearing from me. I totally get that. But I've got to give justice and do, do court, you know, essentially due process to every person that these people murdered. And I can't just speed through homicides. So let's just, like, if you're tired, like, let's just try to get through this. But I'm going to talk through every one of these homicides. So I was on homicide, whatever, number 12, 20. And as I'm talking about it, Calabria starts snickering, kind of giggling. And that's what caused it. That's when I said, look, look, and he had testified. So it, it, it allowed me to speak more freely about him and about his demeanor. And so I said, look, look at this man. He's, and I kind of walked towards him a little. I said, he's laughing. He thinks there's something funny. Uh, I'm talking about a homicide he committed and he, he, he finds it funny. I said something like, there's nothing funny about what you did, Mr. Calabrese, and, and, and then turned back. And that's when he said the thing about dead man. And, uh, and that sort of was a dramatic, in a sense, moment, which, I mean, it's funny. My neighbors, I lived in a kind of a townhouse in Chicago, an old town. And my neighbors were like, ah, oh, it's so great what you do. Thank you so much. Could you please move? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, part of this trial was like, oh, the bombings that the mob does and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, um, well, it's not because it was on the cover of the Chicago Sun-Times, you know, big picture of Frank smiling and then me looking rather grim and it said like you're a dead man over the top of it which wow. came as a surprise to all of us and then it, it ended up having we, we we learned about this whole none of us picked up on it because we kind of mumbled it but the jurors were kind of facing him and they saw it and heard it they're the ones that came to us and told us about what he had done but in any event those are a little kind of war stories and ultimately one of the um I mean, again, to me, like being working with these guys we all had very different styles I mean every one of us even the agents they all had different styles but it really worked well together, I think, with with this jury that over time, you know, maybe a three-day trial, they would have had a different perspective on it. But over time, they really got what was going on here and and, and why what we were proving up was proven up. And one of the, the things I'm, 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 I've always been proud of is that we received the Attorney General's Award for trial performance. And so every year, the Attorney General selects or his team selects one trial out of the 9,000 or so jury trials that occur around the United States in federal courthouses. And they select one trial as the best example of, of, of trial performance by federal prosecutors. And they, after the sentencings were done and everything, the case was over, they select, and unfortunately, Mitch obviously at that point wasn't able to be there, but the attorney general, we had a, a, a award ceremony in D.C., and the attorney general gave us the, um, the attorney general's award for trial performance called the John Marshall Award. And that was the first time in the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office's history, that any that we, any trial team or any trial attorney had received, you know, the nation's highest kind of award for trial performance for federal prosecutors, and for us it was a really it was very poignant not for Mitch not to be there, but John was there and Mitch's wife was there, and so we all you know, and the Pat Fitzgerald, the U.S. Attorney, was there, and so we all we received this award, which was a really it was an amazing experience and it was an amazing bookend to this this experience. Uh, doing the kind of a trial of a lifetime, frankly. Unbelievable. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on, you know, effective witness preparation. You mentioned 
the empathy and, and just like to hear a little bit more about that because that's been something we've talked about with others. Yeah, it's a, it's a curious thing, right? Because, in, 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 and again, I, I do as, as particularly David knows, I, I write a lot about yeah. things that are not going to draw a lot of clients to our firm uh, in the <laughs> sense that I do a lot of scholarly uh, uh, writing, a um, lot of law review articles and things about somewhat esoteric topics. And I, I do think a lot about sort of persuasion in the context of, of, of jurors and, and kind of what they're looking for and also witness preparation. And I mentioned the scholarly stuff because, you know, I do a lot of comparative law writing on Germany and other countries. And, and one of the things you realize is we have a very unusual system in that we, we do prepare witnesses. That's not true at the International Criminal Court. That's not true in Germany. That's not true in most countries. You don't get to, as a prosecutor, sit down with witnesses and sort of prep them for their testimony. It's considered improper. It's, in fact, considered to be unethical. In our system, of course, we do a lot of witness prep. And it does, you know, arguably give a an advantage. I'm not going to say unfair advantage. It certainly gives an advantage to prosecutors because we get to sit with a witness for a long time, as long as we want. Now, again, in a trial like Family Secrets, just logistically, it's, you know, you're limited. But we spend a lot of time with them. And we do want to, you know, my, my personal philosophy, and I think my colleagues know this, even when we go interview, we do a lot of internal investigations around the world where we sit down with people often from different cultures and different environments who've never met us before and who are not at ease right, when we come walking in. Like, I never wear a suit. That's number one. I barely ever wear a sport coat. I typically dress like very casually. I kind of BS with people for a while. I, I, I That's my personal. I just chit-chat. I mean, I like chit-chatting, as you can tell. But uh, I, I chit-chat with them about whatever their careers or where they're from or what the weather is. This is something that agents do a lot is, is get a sense of their baseline. Like, what are the, what is their normal reaction to things? So that way I have a better sense because I've not spent a year or a lifetime with these people. I've spent like an hour with them that if I'm hitting a sore subject or if there's something where I think they may not be truthful, you can see it's changed maybe in their demeanor and you can kind of pick up on it. And having by now interviewed, I mean, it's got to be over a thousand witnesses in my career, both for trials and also for just for investigation work, well over a thousand. I think that's a super important part. I mean, the number of times I've, and this is unfortunately also true with federal prosecutors, the number of times that I've gone into a room or I've worked with other attorneys at other law firms, I'll leave them unnamed, and they just have this robotic formality about them. And they walk in the room and they're, they've got a three-piece suit on and they're like, sir, I will ask you questions. I represent the company. I do not represent you. You should know. And they call them Upjohn warnings, right? That's just right there. If someone talks about Upjohn warnings, I immediately think, hmm, because, you know, advisement sounds a lot nicer, right? I always tell them, hey, I'm just, I'm just trying to make sure you understand kind of why we're here. I believe in candor and I believe in openness and transparency. I want you to be transparent and open with me and I'm going to be open with you. Here's what, what I'm doing. Here's why I'm here. I think that goes an incredibly long way in terms of, of then developing a good relationship with witnesses, even witnesses who ultimately may not be on your side. I mean, we had this guy, Glickman, this is, this is the best witness, by the way, I've ever had in my life, it is the best witness in the Family Secrets trial, I think, although I'm a little bit biased. This is a guy who knew the other two prosecutors for a long time. He was a bookmaker. We gave him immunity, and he said, hey, guys, and he didn't know me. He was actually offended. I, did, I was the one who took his examination. He was offended that he got, like, the, 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 the third string. He wanted the star guys, you know, the other two. 
And he was like, wait, I got to go with this kid over here. Like, what about, come on guys, give me the, give me the, the top shelf, uh, uh, the prosecutor. So, <laughs> but he told him, he said, look guys, I respect you. You respect me. I'm, I'm not, I can't testify. Like, I know I got immunity. Do what you got to do. I'm being totally honest. I just, it's, I can't do it. Like my family, this, that, and the other thing. And so we immunized him and he refused to testify. So the judge, you know, put him in jail. Uh, put him in the Metropolitan Correctional Center uh, during the dependency of the trial. About a week or so, maybe two weeks after he was initially put in, he decided differently. He decided he did want to testify. And so he comes in and testifies, but he didn't want to prepare for it with us, right? So I had a good relationship with him because I tried to do, you know, kind of get to know him a little bit during these, the time that he told us he wasn't going to cooperate. So he hits the stand. And I knew he, we all knew everything he knew. And then he, the first thing he says is on cross-examination, this is actually on cross-examination, he is asked by Calabrese's attorney, did my client ever threaten you? Oh, no. Did my client ever shoot at you? Oh, no, never. He would never. Did my client ever hit you with a stick? I mean, he went through every possible way you could assault someone. It was ridiculous. <laughs> that was our, the um, cross. The direct was sort of, he didn't say much. And then that opens a door, right? That opens a big door. When defense attorneys say, did my client ever hurt you or threaten you? Oh, no. He, at one point he says, oh, no. Oh, no, Mr. Lopez, your client is a gentleman. He's a gentleman. So then I get to get up and say, uh, Mr. Glickman, uh, you referred to Mr. Calabrese as a gentleman. And you said he never hit you with a stick. He never, you never shot you. Where were you the last two weeks? Oh, uh, I was, uh, uh, I couldn't be here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know you couldn't be here. Where were you? I was in, uh, in the prison, in jail. Well, why were you there? Well, you know, uh, I, I, uh, the judge put me there. Well, the judge put you there because the gentleman over here and his friends, you, you thought they might kill you and your family. Isn't that right? That's, that's why you were, spent the last two weeks in jail. They, you thought they were going to kill you. He, and he's like, yes. <laughs> it was amazing because the juror could see. The juror's like, this is not us putting a perfectly polished witness up who's like testifying like, like on a recording, you know, everything rehearsed. This guy's trying to hurt our case. And he ends up delivering the most powerful testimony in favor of our case that I think I have ever seen in any case I've ever prosecuted. Not because of any great work by me, but because the defense attorney overplayed his hand. Right. He overplayed his hand. And that's a big one, I think, persuasion wise. I mean, knowing when to stop, not always my strength, but but an important skill, knowing when to stop, knowing when you've given the jury enough, even things like we had a lot of homicide photos. Right. So we but we don't want to get the jurors mad at us by showing them. They're very gruesome. So we show them certain ones. We do black and white, not color, because in some world, in some cases, people want to have as gruesome. Prosecutors are always trying to show the most gory, gruesome thing. Our perspective was if we get if we overdo it, they're gonna start resenting us. They're gonna, you know, and so we're not trying to gild the lily. We just wanna show them what we we need to show them to prove our case, but not go overboard and not uh, offend them. And so it ended up obviously being a case that, like I said, that I'll never forget. But persuasion-wise, it was fascinating to me to work with Mitch and John because they've been prosecutors for decades longer than I had, and they were so skilled, and we just had very different styles. But each one of us, we would choose witnesses based on our styles. Like, well, who would work well? Like, who would who'd be able to probably do the best 
with a particular defendant or a particular witness. And so we really tried to, we tried to divide up the world that way, and, and it worked out well for us. On the generational theme, I, I'm really curious to go back to Frank Calabrese's son. What happened to him? I, I, my understanding was he actually like wore a, a wire in jail to, to try and get his dad to incriminate himself. Do you have any insight onto what happened there? And, and did he use any persuasion tactics against his own dad? Yeah, I mean, Jasmine, he certainly did. It's actually interesting. He 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 almost gives a master class in how to uh, be an undercover. <laughs> he said that he learned from his dad the two ways to get people to basically crack and, and admit things is anger and alcohol. Wow. wow. And so alcohol was off the table uh, in this particular case. They were both in jail together. So he's in jail with his dad. We wire him up. He records. And how does he get his dad angry? He tells his dad about how all, all sorts of people think his dad's a loser. <laughs> and his dad isn't really a tough guy. And his dad didn't really do this. He didn't really do that. And the one way to get Frank Calabrese mad is to sort of say, oh, you, you, you know, the, you know I, I look, dad, I love you. But, uh, you know, uh, such and such said that you really didn't have a big role in this one homicide or something like that. Then wow. he's like, oh, well, let me tell you, that's, that's bullshit. I did X and I did Y. And. He did this, and I only he only did that, and I did the you know the. So really, the way Frank Jr. was able to, uh, or Frankie as he's known, um, was able to get under his dad's skin, and to get his dad to make admissions that were fatal to the uh, to the Chicago mob, was by getting him angry. And this worked also. There's a guy named Red Wamet. He did this to another uh, important witness who passed away prior. He was on the uh, he was a fugitive and then passed away. Frank the German Schweiss, he um, was a prolific, um, probably the most prolific mob hitman. And same thing. He, he went in there during an undercover back in the 80s and said, hey, you know, another mobster came and said that I, I shouldn't pay any money to you because, you know, you're not the, the guy who really runs the show. He does. And, and Frank Schweiss ends up blowing up and saying, who does this guy think he is? You know, we're an army. We're not just one person. If I'm gone... Then another soldier comes and takes my place. You know, when when Joe Lombardo went to jail, you know, someone else took his place. Who this guy think is he's screwing with the army? Which is great, by the way, when you're trying to prove that there's an organization that has continuity and a structure, right? Pretty nice, the army. But with Frank, it was the same thing. So Frank sat there and very difficult, by the way. In the movies, is always easy. But to wire someone up and film and, and do it in a, in a prison setting is very, very challenging. We ended up getting a lot of audio tapes of Frank Sr. talking about his various exploits by Frank Jr. basically calling him, not calling him a wimp, but I mean but questioning um, the nature and circumstances of, of what he actually did in the mob. Now, later, Frank claimed he was just bragging. That was his defense, essentially. He was trying to, his son didn't love him. He, he was afraid he was going to lose his son, and his son always admired strong men, and so he was trying to kind of hype himself up, you know, flex a little bit about being like this this mob murder when in fact it was all made up. The problem, of course, for him was a lot of the things he admitted were things no one knew about. Right. It's not in the media. And so you'd only know it if he was there, right? So we took a 12-gauge with a slug and then we took uh, handguns. And I mean, when you, then the forensic evidence is that there was a slug and used and and and, and handguns and wow. it's kind of tough you know to to, to back away he from played that. himself yeah he played himself yeah yeah no no for sure and he i mean i think if you were i i obviously didn't have a chance to talk to the various defendants 
Um, uh, but uh, I bet they were pretty mad at him because he really did sink their battleship. Because without him, you just have Nick. You'd have Nick going in there and saying, you know, I did this and he did that. But the jurors, they're suspicious of a guy who was a, you know, a, a, a very prolific murderer. Uh, but when you have sort of the defendant himself speaking about what he did and his co co-conspirators did, right? There's co-conspirator exception to the hearsay rule and statement against interest and all that other good stuff. So, I mean, he was, he, he, you know, we had him on tape. And we had him on tape with his wife, talking to his wife about various things, you know, you know, bring the redheaded girl over and bring a thousand tires and, you know, that, that kind of very odd uh, code. And they tried to say, oh, this is, you know, uh, husband, spousal privilege. And we said, no, it's, it's crime fraud exception. You guys are engaging, talking about criminal activity. It's exception to the hearsay rule. That's the other thing, by the way, David, like that's very helpful in Jasmine is we, we as, as, and you'll see this with federal prosecutors around the country. If you look at major law firms, they're littered with federal prosecutors. And one of the reasons is repetition. You know, you, you, you're constantly in court. You're in court every day. You're doing hearings. You're doing trials. You're, you're so like the rules of evidence. You can't just say objection, right? The judge is going to expect you to have an articulable basis for an objection. And they get really upset if you don't. Or if it's some nonsense thing. So you're, you're sort of trained from day one to be really precise with your objections, to really understand the rules of evidence, to understand sort of the procedural requirements. And, and that's sort of a skill like riding a bike that you kind of, you carry with you the rest of your career. And it's hard to develop it. Like for me, it would be hard to develop it purely in, in, a, in a, and this is no offense to anyone who's at a law firm, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm at a law firm. But it's harder to develop when you don't have the, the opportunity to do it every single day for like a decade. That's, I think, one of the reasons you'll see a lot of former AUSAs kind of all over the place at all these major and minor law firms because it is a skill set that can be valuable. Not always valuable, but can be valuable. We interviewed a guy who started the FBI um, negotiation school. He, he made some comments that were similar to what you were saying about dealing with witnesses, you know, being sort of active listening and, and being empathetic and how his style totally turned things the way the FBI started handling negotiations. I just want to get any other observations you have on, you know, those things about either dealing with witnesses or preparing a, a witness for deposition, which is what we have to do now, right? Or taking a deposition. Any thoughts on, on either? Well, I suppose, you know, in the deposition context, one of the things we're aware of how to get under someone's skin. So you also try to prepare them for that. In other words, don't rise to the bait. Don't, don't fall for the trick. You know, when they're trying to do things that are, it might appear to be insulting to you. I, I recently watched, I'm quite sure this does not create a conflict. Uh, Mike Lindell, my pillow guy. I will say uh, this is actually my, my, my physician suggested I watch it because <laughs> he knew my job and he, he thought it was particularly amusing and I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. I mean, and, and talk about not doing much to get under a guy's skin. At one point, he says something like, you know, if someone wants to call the 800 number about a lumpy pillow, and the guy, like, flips out about, like, lumpy pillow, you obviously know nothing about the pillows I saw. And so, and, and the poor attorney is trying to, like, control him. He's like, hey, Mike, no, relax, relax. Uh, um, and he really, like, it's a it's a very, uh, it's it's worthwhile watching if you have an extra minute between calls or something. Yeah, there there was there's a YouTube video floating around for sure where you can watch him flip out over his lumpy pillow. <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah, yeah. No, so and again, not making any comments about the merits of his case or whatever his his thoughts are, but it shows that, you know, some people you you can prep them a lot, but boy, when they're actually sitting there and then some attorney who they don't like anyway, 
who they view as sort of not likable uh, and and corrupt, maybe even ask, even like, how are you today? They like, you know, why, why are you being so sarcastic about how I am? You know how I am. I don't like being here. Really putting them through their paces by having someone cross-examine them and act like a real jerk to them, I think is really helpful. So the empathy part is great. Maybe ignorance is bliss here because I didn't grow up in a deposition environment. I grew up in a kind of a cross-examination environment. So I do depositions very, very differently, I think, than 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 some of my colleagues do. Like for one thing, I, I, I all these general objections, you know, these these silly you know, if you ask for the basis, you know, half the time these people look at you like they're deer in the headlights. They have no idea because they're just like, they're so trained to say objection form or whatever, you know, and it's like, they don't understand the rules of evidence, particularly. I know that the, it's, the deposition is a different thing, but, oh, you know, help me understand how I, you know, what's the basis of your objection so I make sure I don't ask another objectionable follow-up. And, 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 and that really can throw people who don't have the routine of it, right? But uh, I think prep-wise, you know, and I've had to go bad. I mean, let me let me be clear. Just because I'm like pontificating about how to do it right does not mean that I haven't done it wrong a million times. But I think uh, getting them ready for really what what their emotions might be like when they actually are uh, sitting there with a camera on and some some guy they don't like is a gal they don't like is asking questions is pretty important. You know, the rapport building I think can be helpful. I, I we had a colleague uh, who who is now uh, uh, pursuing sort of scholarly activities. Uh, Alex Bailey, and I remember in the DuPont trial, you know, with me, I was like on a horse with with a saber drawn, screaming. You know, they could see me coming from a mile away, right? These, these witnesses. Alex Bailey was amazing. He was a junior attorney, relatively junior attorney at the time. And he he would just ask these so for, he, I mean, he would spend like 10 minutes saying good morning to people uh, when they're on the stage. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, that's great. I hope you had a good day. Oh, hope you had a good night's sleep, you know, blah, blah, blah. And by the time he asked his questions, the, these people loved him. All, all of these witnesses, these expert witnesses, I mean, he, he pickpocketed them. I mean, he would, he would have them admit to things that they would never admit to if I came along, you know, like, well, you don't believe, you don't want me to believe, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. He was just so charming and quiet and chill and within himself. And this is, I think, the biggest thing I find, the biggest, like, I guess, tip. I used to do, like, interviewing, interrogation training for the FBI, for DOJ, kind of, you know, so, I, again, not because I'm this great fount of knowledge, just probably because I because I have a high opinion of my own views or something. But uh, but Alex was just a master at at very politely getting them to give away the store. So, you know, he, he would just he would just pickpocket them and they wouldn't even know it. And I think the lesson to me is when people are within themselves, stay within the, the their comfort zone. Like if you're an aggressive person and that's your normal style, trying to be sweet. Now, I've seen it a million times where like these super aggressive people try to be nice and, and ask questions in a very saccharine, sweet way. It's super phony. Everyone can see through it. I feel like anyone can see through it. The flip side is when people whose normal temperament, their normal sort of resting heart rate is low and they're chill and they're like non-confrontational and they try to pretend to be super aggressive or, you know, uh, alpha, it comes off as phony and insincere. And so the one thing that I that I think is important is to kind of know what your, like know your, your guardrails, like know where you're comfortable and normal and just learn to be that person. Like Alex Bailey is not a confrontational jerk. 
right? I, I hope Alex hears this. He'll love these compliments. He's not a confrontational jerk. He's a nice guy. So he doesn't try to pretend to be a confrontational jerk in depositions or during a trial. He stays within his comfort zone. I tend to sometimes be more of a confrontational jerk. And so I don't try to always be like super saccharine sweet when I'm not feeling super saccharine sweet. And so I think that's like the biggest tip because it happens. I'm telling you, in, the Bureau is a good example. I, I you know, you they, they, they sometimes agents have a perception of how an agent behaves. You know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I've, I'm going to ask you the same question again, that kind of thing. Now, they're not obviously doing it in a in a courtroom context. They're doing it in, in an interview context. But often, it's not their natural way. And, and, and the best, like Mike Mesa, that guy is a nice guy. He can be, he has a very wide spectrum of personality. So he can, he can be confrontational. He can be nice. But it's all within his natural way. And he was just great at it. And when people try to be, be like the hard ass when they're not, or, or vice versa. It just comes off as phony. And I, I'm very convinced that jurors, uh, judges, and anyone watching this stuff will see it right away. You Right away, you can see when someone's sort of being phony. And again, you lose credibility. And once you've lost credibility, whether it's through the evidence you present, the arguments you make, or your, frankly, your, your, your style, you lose credibility with the jury or the judge, and you're done. I mean, it's very hard to rebuild that. It's sort of a it's sort of a binary on-off. We recently, um, not going to go into any details, but we recently had this in a, in a litigation where we were really riding high and we felt the judge was on our side. And then certain things were done, not by us, but certain things were done that that I think flipped the judge. And now, you know, it's it's, it's hard to come back from that. So I, that I think is a, that's, that's probably a 10 minute version of like a 10 second bit of advice, which is stay within your comfort zone and don't try to be someone that you're not. That is the number one thing that I see that people kind of screw up, frankly. I don't really have a question. I just have a comment on this tactic of getting under people's skin. It seems so rudimentary, but it's amazing how effective it can be, right? I, I mean, it, this is not like a, something you learn in secret agent class. This is like, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking of Back to the Future where they tried to bait you know, Michael J. Fox's character into punching someone. And it's like, all you had to do is call him, what are you, chicken? <laughs> he has this big reaction, right? It's pretty interesting. You know, we, we've heard a lot of themes today and, and from our other guests, and it comes back to some really basic things. You know, build trust, build rapport. You can bait people into things, um, you know, and, and be authentic to yourself. Uh, I think that's kind of the key themes we've heard. Totally agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to listen to some of your other episodes because uh, I think hearing different perspectives, the way you guys are able to very uh, artfully kind of get people to tell their, pers- their genuine perspective on what works for them. You'll hear one person and you hear another, and eventually you do develop there are certain themes there. And, and you know, people might have different perspectives on different question- ways of doing things. But overall, I think, you know, what you guys are doing and allowing people to, to, to listen and hear from different folks and, and, and sort of develop an idea of what is persuasive is, is so valuable. So I, I really, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to to hang out with you guys a little bit and to to learn from you. And uh, obviously, you know, David, I've, I'm a, a big fan. Every opportunity to tell people, hey, if you can figure out how David is as good as he is, uh, let me know because it's just amazing. Talk about empathy. I mean, I know I'm sw- switching the tables here a little bit, uh, but the way David is able to get these really high-level CEOs, general counsel, I mean, people who really run major, major industries comfortable and, and to feel heard, 
He always reminds us of the 80-20 rule, which is one of my biggest flaws. I have many, but that is one of the more obvious ones that I have a hard time shutting up even now. But like the way David does it is a masterclass. And I always tell like newer attorneys, I'm like, hey, do you know David Bitterman? You got to get to know that guy. Give him a call. Tell him I told you to give him a call. Because if you can learn the way he does it and the way he makes people feel, the empathy is, is ex extraordinary. And so I think, you know, as much as you're awesome at asking questions, I think uh, if people are really smart people, they should say, you know, how does David Bitterman do it? Uh, and and, and that, that, there's a lot to be learned. That's too kind, Marcus. My motivator is fear, as you well know. So <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Can't thank you enough. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. 